Well, we're going to take our Bibles now, and we're going to turn to the New Testament letter of 2 Peter. Boys and girls, you might want to get one of the blue pew Bibles and follow along with the reading. There are some big words in our reading reading tonight, but it's a really helpful passage which tells us that Jesus has died for our sins and that God has given us everything we need to live for him. So it's 2 Peter chapter 1, and you'll find it on page 1018, so 1018 of the Pew Bibles. And we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and it's page 1018 of the Blue Pew Bibles. And as we read this part of the Bible, we remember that this is God's word to us. He is speaking to us. So we need to listen really carefully to what this says. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. It says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, You'll find the passage that we're looking at tonight on page 1018 of the Blue Pew Bibles. As you're turning to it, let's pray briefly for a moment. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would come and speak to us through your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of light, the spirit of love, the spirit of holiness. And we pray that he might be at work in our hearts and in our lives as we consider your word tonight. Guide us and help us and bring glory to Christ, we pray. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. Last Sunday morning, I played a game with the boys and girls. The game was a made-up game. I made it up, and it was called Imagine. Uh, You'll remember that I got them to close their eyes and to imagine doing something, so coming down to the front of church, sitting in school, crossing the road in Brashane. I want to play that game again tonight, and I want to play it with you. 
Now, I'm not going to get you to close your eyes. Don't want to turn this into some sort of new, new age, weird new age thing. But I want you to imagine a story from the Bible. It's the story of Jesus walking on the water from Matthew 14. So I want you to imagine this story as I sort of retell it in a slightly different way. Let's give it a go. So imagine, imagine you were there. Jesus has just fed 5,000 men, and that doesn't include women and children. You're with the disciples, and Jesus puts them on a boat, puts you in a boat, and tells the disciples to cross over to the other side. He goes up a mountain to pray. You're on the boat with the disciples, and all you can smell is fish. You can't really understand what they're saying, what the disciples are saying, because their accent is so thick. But they're talking away, chatting away. must be about fish. The boats drift away from land. It's the Sea of Galilee. The disciples know it well. They fish these waters. They know that it can be difficult at times. And tonight is one of those nights where it's difficult. The boat is being battered by the wind and the waves. On one of the watches, one of the disciples spots someone walking towards the boat, walking on the water towards the boat. You talk about freaking out to a man. Every one of them goes white. Someone shouts, it's a ghost. But then the person speaks and they say, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And it turns out that it's Jesus. Jesus actually walking on the water. Peter was always the loudmouth and he blurts out, Lord, if it is you, command me to come with you on the water. Jesus said, come, and out hopped Peter. Now he is walking on the water and making his way towards Jesus, actually walking on the water. But then all of a sudden he disappears. You're at the edge of the boat with everyone else, hanging over the side to see how this is going to play out. You hear the plop and then the splashing. And Peter isn't walking anymore. He's drowning. He's a big guy, a rough and ready fisherman, and he's drowning. In between him going under the water and coming back up, he gasps for air and you hear him scream. Scream like you have never heard anyone scream before. Scream, Lord, save me. And then you see Jesus reach out his hand, take hold of Peter, and then make his way with Peter to you on the boat. Imagine. What, what, what do you think Peter would have said about what happened? What would he, what, what would he have said about it afterwards? He, he might have been very sure of himself. I'm the guy who walked on water with Jesus. But he might also have been humbled. Humbled because the big, tough fisherman failed. He might have thought of Psalm 40 verse 2 because he would have known the Psalter inside out. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He might have talked about his experience in terms of an escape. He escaped the waters of death and it was a great escape. Afterwards, he talked about it regularly. Jesus pulled me up out of the water and I escaped death. Imagine, imagine you were there. We start in that way. We start with that made-up game because it's helpful for us to realize that part of what it means to be a Christian is to understand that we have experienced the great escape. We have been pulled up and pulled away from death and sin. We will all one day die, 
but through Jesus we will live forevermore. Having introduced his second letter, Peter, the man who walked on water, tells us about the great escape, but, but also tells us what it means and what its implications are. Last week we saw that Peter is a servant and an apostle of Jesus, and Jesus is the Savior, he's God, he's the Christ, he's the Lord. Peter is writing this letter in order that we might have, have grace that stops us from falling. And having introduced things, having spoken about grace and peace, Peter talks to us about the great escape. As we think about verses 3 to 11 of Second Peter tonight, we're, we're going to think about three things. We're going to think about what God has done, how we're to live, and what we have to help us. It's a very simple outline, so let's get started. First of all, what God has done. Let's read verses 3 and 4 again together. Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of, because of sinful desire. What, what, what has God done? Well, in rich language, Peter tells us that by his divine power, God has called us to his own glory and excellence. God himself has acted to accomplish our salvation. Our rescue was something that only he could accomplish. Human ability does not meet the, the, the standard required. How has he accomplished our salvation? Well, the answer comes in verse 1 when we're told about the faith of equal standing that comes through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we didn't really touch on the, on the mention of righteousness last week. Our salvation is accomplished through the righteousness of Christ. Classically, this is explained to us by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. In verse 21 of that chapter, we read, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul says is that just as God imputed our sin and guilt to Christ, he made him to be sin, so God also imputes the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that is not our own, to all who believe in him. In simpler terms, when we believe in Jesus, God regards or counts believers as forgiven and he declares and treats us as forgiven. That's because our sin is put on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness is put on us. A very good way to imagine this is to think of my life, your life being recorded and put onto a videotape. Do you remember VCRs? Do you remember how awkward they were? Imagine that we have a screening up in the church hall. Would you come? If such a videotape existed of my life and if a showing was organized, I would make sure that I was a million miles away. But imagine my whole life, your whole life is on video, warts and all. And on the night of the screening of the life of Stephen Kennedy, I turn up and hear some good news. The video has been taped over. Someone else's life video is going to be shown instead of mine, but it's still known as the life of Stephen Kennedy. It's still credited as mine. That's what imputation is like. Now, it's not a perfect illustration by any means, but it gives you a sense of what's behind the word righteousness. God regards or, or, or counts believers as forgiven 
and he declares and treats us as forgiven. Now, Peter is probably using the word righteousness in a slightly different way, but it's by his divine power that God has rescued us. It's by his divine power that he has given us the righteousness of Christ. And he's also called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, we are to imitate his glory and excellence in how we're to live. We're going to come on to that in just a moment. On top of the things we've mentioned, God grants to us his precious and great promises. It's what we were saying this morning. God graciously keeps his promises and gives them to us. And through his promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. We don't become part of God, but we share in his nature as we become more like him. That this is what God has done. He has given us a righteousness, a, a standing that is not our own. And he's done that through our Lord and Savior. He has accomplished our salvation through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And it's through Jesus that, that God helps us to escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. A man called J.B. Phillips has translated the New Testament in the same way that the message does, only his translation is probably a little bit more accurate and probably a little bit more helpful. He translates this, that, that phrase in this way. He says that God has made it possible for you to escape the inevitable disintegration that lust produces in the world and to share in God's essential nature. So God has made it possible for us to escape the inevitable disintegration that comes through sin. If something disintegrates, it breaks up, falls apart, fragments, fractures, shatters, splinters, ruptures, explodes, blows up, crumbles, collapses, or degenerates. So think of paper disintegrating when it's wet. It just falls apart. Think of a, of a, of a, of a patchwork quilt piece of road disintegrating after a week of ice and snow. It just crumbles and leaves a pothole. What Peter is saying is that God has saved us and has helped us to escape from the disintegration that sin brings. To live in sin is to live in a spiral that goes down, down, down. People today think that sin is good and that living in a sinful way is normal, but Peter says that it's not. To live the life of a sinner is to disintegrate from what God made you to be. What God has done is that he has made it possible to escape that disintegration. He has helped us to escape from the corruption of the world and to live a life that is in step with him. That's what God has done. But how are we to live? Well, that's our second point. What God has done and how we're to live. Peter says that we're to make every effort to live a godly life. Look at verses five to seven. He says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. These verses contain a straightforward catalog of biblical virtues. This is like the Argos catalog of the Christian faith. Now, the list isn't a legalistic code. It's not live like this and you'll be accepted by God. The list contains features of a transformed heart and the call to live in this way is grounded in what God has done. 
In verse 5, Peter says that we're to make every effort to supplement our faith. So we're not just to confess faith in Christ, but we're to actually live as he taught. There are seven virtues listed in verses 5 to 7, and they're all the results of faith. So you'll see that faith comes first, and then everything else follows afterwards. Then in verse 8, Peter says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The picture here is a a lifelong pattern of growth in Christ-like character. That's what's expected of us. And it's the key to living fruitfully. And if you lack these qualities, the the qualities of verses 5 to 7, well, you're blind. That's what Peter says in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The lack of fruit in your life could exist because your cleansing was just an external reformation that didn't come from a changed heart, but it could also describe a genuine believer who has fallen into serious sin and error. Ultimately, only God knows our true status and standing, but that's worth running over in your mind. If you're a believer and you're lacking these qualities, is it because you've been blinded by sin? In light of what God has done, We're to supplement our faith and live in a way that is fruitful. And we're to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. For if we practice these qualities, we will never fall. That's verse 10. God calls believers to faith through the gospel, but he has also chosen, elected us before the foundation of the world. His grace and salvation shouldn't be taken for granted though. Now you might have a question which is, How do I know that God has chosen me? Well, growing in Christ-like virtues, like in the the Christ-like virtues mentioned in verses five to seven, will give us increasing confidence that God really did call us and really did elect us. You will know that God has chosen you if you become more like him. What's striking about what Peter says is that it's, it's very black and white. He says, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The opposite must also be true. If you don't practice these qualities, you will fall. If you are not actively pursuing virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, you will fall. That's the logic of what he says. And it's a little bit sharp, isn't it? But it's, it's that almost belligerent tone that we mentioned last week. Peter lays it on the line. He tells it like it is. You would expect that of a rough and ready fisherman. You can imagine him saying it. If you practice this stuff, you'll never fall. But if you don't, you will. And believe me, I know all about falling. So now it's time for some difficult questions. Is this how we're living? Are these qualities evident in your life at the moment? What are you chasing after? Are you making every effort, every effort to supplement your faith? Are you an effective or ineffective Christian? Are you a fruitful or unfruitful Christian? J.B. Phillips, him again, helpfully translates the first part of verse 5. He begins this section on how we're to live by translating the first few, few, few words of verse 5 in this way. He says, For this very reason, you must do your utmost from your sight. 
For this very reason, you must do your utmost from your side. That's very helpful. In other words, and this is what we've said, verses 3 and 4 tell us what God has done. Verses 5 to 11 tell us how we're to live. And having been rescued, having been granted an escape, we must do everything from our side to grow in grace. Now, it's not, not, not that our growth in grace is the basis for our salvation. The things we do don't save us. But our growth in the Christian life, our growth in the graces that Peter talks about, give the assurance of salvation. If we practice these things, we won't fall away and we'll also be reassured because we would only want to become more like Jesus if Jesus has saved us. That's the logic of what's going on here. If you're not a Christian, you won't be interested in being more self-controlled and more loving. But, but if you are a Christian and you sense that you want to grow in these areas, then that is God's way of confirming that you're his. What God has done, how we're to live, what we have to help us. That's our final point this evening. Is it that God just tells us that we're to live in a certain way and he leaves us to figure it out? Not, not at all. What, what, what do we have to help us as we live as Christians? Everything we possibly need. Look again at the opening part of verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I absolutely love this verse. This is one of the most helpful verses in the entire New Testament. Debbie Phillips, him again, third and last time, he puts the beginning of verse 3 in this way. He says, He has done, he has by his own action given us everything that is necessary for living the truly good life. He has, by his own action, given us everything that is necessary for living the truly good life. Maybe you've listened to this sermon, and particularly in point two, you've thought, okay, very good, I have to do this, I have to live in this way, but how can I? How can I when I can't even face work tomorrow? How can I when I'm facing trial after trial? How can I when I'm living in the shadow of bereavement, the desperation of loneliness, the depths of depression, the, the isolation of anxiety. Well, look at what Peter says again. His divine power. So that's God's divine power. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, God has given me everything that I need. Everything. He has given me his son. Jesus has died for my sins and because of him, I am counted as righteous before my father. He has given me his spirit. He dwells in me. He lives in me and he helps me to become more like my savior. And he has given me his word. I, I was listening to a Bible talk that wasn't on 2 Peter this week. And one of the things the preacher said really stood out. He quoted another minister who said that in over 40 years of Christian ministry, 90% of the pastoral problems that he had encountered had emerged simply because Christians had stopped reading their Bibles and praying every day. It was an astonishing anecdote. 90% of the problems he faced were because Christians had stopped reading the Bible and praying every day. But it raises the question, are we reading our Bibles? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us his son. 
He's given us his spirit and he's given us his word. We know what his son has done. We know that his spirit dwells in us, but his word often lies untouched, gathering dust on our shelves or bedside tables. We often qualify our failure to to not read the Bible by saying that it's a big source of guilt. I don't read it as often as I should. I know it's important and I know I should make time for it. Yes, we should. We really should. And it's bad that we don't. Because in it, in the Bible, we have all that we need for life in this world. Peter's going to explain that in more detail towards the end of this chapter. It's what we have to help us. And we ignore it. We treat it lightly. We prefer to go down the path of disintegration instead of the path that's set out in the Word. Now that all sounds very negative, but it should be a challenge to us. Will we take what God has given to us for life and godliness in this world seriously? Dick Lucas says that Peter lays out how to live the godly life and that it's a matter of hard submission to God's word. And then he adds this, and this is, this is an absolute cracker of a line. He says, the Christian who is not godly has only one person to blame. The Christian who is not godly has only one person to blame. We should think on that for a while. There's something else to help us though, and it's a vision of heaven. Look at verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's often spoken of as the person who's, who's sitting at the pearly gates, but now he's looking towards them. And we're supposed to think of a marathon runner crossing the finish line in front of a delighted home crowd. Our entrance into heaven has been richly provided by Jesus. And that thought of crossing the line, crossing the finish line, being with him forever, being in heaven, seeing the people who also believed should spur us to godliness in this life. What God has done. He has given us the righteousness of his son, And he has helped us to escape from the disintegration that sin brings. How we're to live. We're to be marked by virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love. We're to be fruitful. And if we don't practice those things, we'll fall. What we have to help us. Everything. Absolutely everything. He has, by his own action, given us everything that is necessary for living the truly good life. There's something very helpful about hearing the things that we've heard tonight. We need to be constantly reminded of what God has done for us. We need to be reminded that there is a certain way that God wants us to live. And we need to be reminded that we have everything we need for life in this world. Having started with a game of imagine, we're going to finish with one. It's based on a It's not based on a story found in the Bible, but it's an attempt to see the pastoral heart of Peter for those he's writing to. So imagine Peter. He's nearly at the end, the end of his life. He's in prison and he's writing on a scroll of parchment or he's dictating this letter to his secretary. Imagine his hard, calloused hands, hands that have been beaten by the wind and the waves, hands that have pulled nets on deck, And imagine that as he writes or dictates the following, he says, tell these people 
write this to them. If you do this, I can guarantee you, you will stand. But, but if you don't, I'm telling you, you won't. You definitely won't. Because I have had a flavor of the won't. Because out there, in the coldness of that night, by the far side, when that girl came to me and said, don't you know Jesus of Nazareth? And I said, no, I don't know Jesus of Nazareth. And she said, well, that's funny because you talk like a Galilean. It seems that your accent gives you away and you might be one of them. And I said, no, I don't know Jesus of Nazareth. And on the third occasion, I told her in no uncertain terms, I don't know him. I've got nothing to do with him at all. Imagine Peter writing down these words with that in his mind. What was it that brought Peter through? Was it human effort? Well, that ended up in a complete disaster. He thought that he knew best, but it was a complete failure. What saved him was divine grace. And when that same grace had picked him up and set him forward, Peter set about doing what each of us must do, pursuing the truly good life, the kind of life that is described for us here. One small measure of genuine holiness will outweigh the largest measure of worldly good. If you know the Lord Jesus tonight, how are you living? Are the things that we have highlighted and worked through present in your life? Are you growing in holiness? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Can people see that? Can the people closest to you identify the grace of Christ in your life? And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, you, you, you need to experience the great escape. The, the great escape from the corruption of sin that is offered through Jesus, through his righteousness, through his perfection, through his death on the cross. If you have never believed, if you have never trusted in him, will you come to him this evening for the first time? And in doing so, will you then live the life that is so simply explained in Second Peter chapter 1? We've been reminded of what God has done. We've been reminded of how we're to live. And we've been reminded of what we have to help us. With all of those things in mind, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that through the death of your son on the cross, you've given us a righteousness that is not our own. We thank you for this reminder of how we're to live if we have trusted in Jesus. And we pray that the, the, the virtues mentioned in these verses would become more and more evident in our lives. And we thank you for what you've given us to help us. We thank you that we have everything we need in this life for godliness and to live for you. Help us to be people of your word. Help us to rely on your spirit. And we pray tonight for those who haven't yet trusted in Jesus, that they too might experience like us the great escape from the inevitable disintegration that sin brings. We pray these things. In our Saviour's name. Amen.